Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org podcast. From KQED. Good morning. This is the California Report. I'm Saul Gonzalez in Los Angeles. Nearly two years after imposing the nation's first statewide stay-home COVID order, Governor Gavin Newsom says his administration will outline a plan next week for moving forward in a world where coronavirus is endemic, meaning it's a virus that persists to some degree. It's a reflective plan in many respects. We're looking back at the last two years, what worked, what didn't, uh, what we've all learned, the journey we've been on together. I don't want to oversell it. I mean, it's not a, a prescriptive plan in every way, shape, or form. In fact, in many ways, it, it reflects the moment we're in, which is iterative, uh, and allows for the kind of flexibility of thinking that is incumbent uh, upon all of us as it relates to dealing with any endemic, particularly one as stubborn um, and circulinear as COVID. Newsom's plan will still include quarantines, testing of those who don't show symptoms, and other precautions. But those safeguards will vary. Newsom says state health officials will also outline the revised approach to school mask-wearing requirements no later than Monday, after negotiating with schools and teachers' unions. The governor made the comments at a bill signing, which included one that requires larger companies to give workers up to two weeks of paid sick leave if they come down with the virus. All Bay Area counties except Santa Clara are aligning with the state and will end local mask mandates in most indoor settings next week. Health officials in Santa Clara say they're waiting for cases and hospitalizations to fall before lifting their masking rules. Los Angeles County has issued similar guidance. Meanwhile, further north, Yolo County has joined Sacramento and will also drop its universal mask mandate on February 16th. A fast-moving brush fire has prompted evacuation orders and warnings in Laguna Beach in South Orange County. The blaze broke out in the community of Emerald Bay around 4 o'clock this morning. Although it's burning near homes, Orange County fire officials say there's no reported damage thus far from the fire. Dana Tashner lives in the area and describes what he saw to CBS Los Angeles. There's a a valley there and uh, they can hike and ride bikes there. And uh, my son mentioned to me, he said, there's a lot of fuel up in there. So that's probably where the greatest intensity of the fire is, just visually looking. And then over, over the ridge where it's uh, bright orange-red, that goes down into Irvine Cove, which that's had, I think that's had the, that had the earliest mandatory evacuation order. Fortunately, Tashner was able to leave the area safely after being told to evacuate by police shortly after the fire broke out. Schools in Laguna Beach have canceled classes for the day, and a portion of Pacific Coast Highway is also closed. Fire officials say that despite Santa Ana winds and warmer-than-normal temperatures for this time of year, they've been able to get a better handle on the blaze, which has burned 7 to 10 acres. 
Almost 60% of young people aged 16 to 25 feel worried or extremely worried about climate change. That according to a survey released late last year that polled people in 10 countries. And some younger people here in California are channeling that anxiety into action. The California Report's Gabriela Frenis spoke with young activists and the mentors supporting them as they continue to grow as climate leaders. 16-year-old high school junior Diana Michelson says she's been worried about climate change since her freshman year. That's when she learned her hometown of Long Beach would be facing serious sea level rise by the time she's 25. What I've always been told is, you know, do it for your children, you know, save the future for the next generation. And what I've realized is at this current rate, there's no saving the next generation. We're seeing the effects right now. Michelson is leading a student initiative to transition her school district off of fossil fuels to 100% renewable energy by 2030. But while she's passionate about her activism, she also says her parents just want her to have the life of a normal teenager. We wish that you could just do school. You know, you shouldn't have to be attending these school board meetings. Like, I know that it's important, but we wish that it wasn't the reality. And I think that's what I'm realizing is this isn't normal. We shouldn't have to be rallying for clean air. We shouldn't have to be rallying for a future. But the fact is, the stakes young people like Michelson face around climate change feel so urgent. It's hard to ignore these issues. Young people are going to be you know, impacted for the majority of their lives by whatever climate is to come or is happening right now. Nick Avasco is a youth climate organizer for 350 Bay Area. And Avasco says it's easy for young activists to get frustrated because they often don't have the resources they need to push through sustainable changes at a higher level. This idea of the the youth hope industrial complex, it's this kind of like double-edged sword of you bring us all the solutions and then you take the lead. And then, you know, the flip side of it is that there's no payoff in the political or policy sphere. That's why Avasco says, while on-the-ground activism is important, it's also just as crucial to take time to process the setbacks. 350 Bay Area organizes social events to create a space for young climate advocates to talk about how they're feeling with their work. If you're just, you know, fueled by pure optimism or rage or just one emotion in your activism work, it's it, it can be really detrimental, I've seen in some activists. Advocates who've been working in the climate justice field for a while are aware of the emotional toll it can take and want to be sure the activists coming up now have outlets, other than just advocacy, to process their anxiety. The climate crisis is such a big issue that's not going to be solved overnight. And being able to find a safe space for that through journaling and through community has been extremely rewarding. That's Yvonne Korsma, the founder of the Climate Journal Project. She guides students in California from elementary to college ages on adopting a journaling practice to help them cope with their own environmental anxiety and grief. Planetary healing actually starts with internal healing. So we can only be the best advocates and leaders that we can be if we are really true and doing the work internally. And it's clear from youth activist Diana Michelson's experience that she'll need these internal reinforcements because the responsibility she feels as an activist is continuing to grow. And I think that over time, I, I've learned in, you know, in becoming more educated about the climate crisis and, and uh, you know, energy, sustainability, 
I've seen adults, you know, take us more seriously. I've definitely also felt like this change and this shift in view from little innocent kids to young adults who are inheriting this earth and who will become the leaders. In the meantime, Michelson has been meeting with environmental lawyers who are helping her construct a resolution to present to her school district. She feels optimistic that Long Beach Unified Administrators will commit to move forward with a 100% renewable energy plan by next month. For The California Report, I'm Gabriela Frenes. Hi, I'm Sasha Coca, host of The California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse, golden state. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey, that's where you go to Sunshine State, but we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. Chesa Boudin and George Gascon are respectively the district attorneys of San Francisco and Los Angeles counties. Both were also elected on reform platforms, promising to replace what they said was an ineffective punishment-centered approach to criminal justice with one that emphasizes rehabilitation. But as crime rates and public concern about crime have gone up, both Boudin and Gascon now face campaigns to oust them from office. In San Francisco, Boudin faces a recall election in June, and in L.A., after one failed attempt to qualify a Gascon recall for the ballot, activists are moving forward with a second attempt. At a recall signature gathering event in Beverly Hills over the weekend, I met Sammy Charchian, who discussed his reasons for backing a Gascon recall. I was uh, held up at gunpoint at my office, and they uh, stole my property, and they ransacked my office, and then I also had my home robbed. So you felt the crime wave very personal. It's, it's ridiculous. From having a gun to my head at one occasion and then having my house completely ransacked and robbed. And you blame George Gascon for all of that, part of that, what? Um, I blame him for all of it. You know, they, they're, um, you know, they feel like there's no consequences and they're free to do these kind of things. If they're, if they're not, you know, prosecuted and if they're just let go, there's no need to stop. Again, that was Sammy Charchian supporting the recall campaign of L.A. County D.A. George Gascon. Here to talk more about the politics of the recall efforts in both L.A. and San Francisco is KQED politics correspondent Marisa Lagos. Marisa, thanks for joining us. Pleasure to be here. So give us a reality check when it comes to crime rates now in, say, L.A. and San Francisco. Uh, What are they and how do they compare to other parts of the state and to other times in history? 
Yeah, so I guess we should say to start that we are at an all-time low nationally when it comes to both violent crime and property crimes. However, we have seen a huge spike occur during this pandemic. There was a big jump in murders across the country in 2020, a relatively smaller increase in these two counties compared to most of the state, including, ironically, Republican-led district attorney counties. Overall, they're actually down in both counties. So if you look at the statistics per capita, you're less likely to you know, have been the victim of a violent crime or property crime in either San Francisco or Los Angeles than in many smaller, especially rural counties. But I think that when it comes to personal safety, what matters is how you feel. And what about the DAs themselves? Have they done things or said things that have uh, contributed to the campaigns now targeting them for recall? So I do think that they've both made individual missteps around the politics and the communications of this. And I think that at the end of the day, these are very different counties. You're going to see in San Francisco sort of some of the tribalism that occurs within Democratic politics. In L.A., I think it's just a big place to step in after several years in San Francisco to be district attorney of. And I do think Gascon really rushed out a lot of his policies without perhaps making the case to not just the people that supported him in the campaign, but the broader public. And if one or both of these guys are ousted from office, what do you think that means for criminal justice reform, not only in those counties, but also nationally? Because they're right, they're part of this wider national community of prosecutors who are trying to bring changes to criminal justice. That is sort of the million dollar question, Saul. I mean, I do think, as I said, that each of these men have their own challenges that are perhaps not unrelated, but not necessarily directly tied to criminal justice reform. And I do think that broadly in the state, we're still seeing pretty strong support for the idea of, say, rehabilitation over prison. The public sentiment has changed around a lot of this stuff. Again, that can be very different if you're the victim of a crime, right? So I will be watching that. I would not make the assumption that if they were both recalled, that that would automatically mean criminal justice reform is dead. I do think that it would be sort of a warning for a lot of these reformers. And I think it's going to be interesting to see whether the movement sort of takes this politically and and tries to use it. You know, one thing that has struck me is how much of the blame is put on these two individual prosecutors when there's really not any evidence to show that who a DA is has that big of an impact on crime. And at the end of the day, we don't see, say, the Republican registered district attorney in Riverside County being blamed every time there's a murder there, or even in Alameda County in the Bay Area, a Democrat. And so I I think that they are being held up as examples of this reform movement. But whether or not the movement sort of dies or or, or rises with them, I'm not completely sure that connection is there. All right. That is KQED's Marisa Lagos. Marisa, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. And finally, a new report from the ACLU of Northern California reveals how sheriff departments in the Central Valley have transferred a thousand jailed immigrants in local detention to federal immigration authorities. That's a much higher figure than official numbers submitted to the state by the departments. The ACLU accuses the sheriff departments of pursuing an anti-immigrant agenda and actively working to circumvent California's Values Act. That's a state law that limits local law 
law enforcement's cooperation with immigration and customs enforcement. The ACLU says Central Valley law enforcement agencies have developed shadow systems to transfer immigrants from local jails to the feds, even though those detained have completed their sentences, paid their bail, or been ordered released by a judge. And that is the California Report for Thursday, February 10th. We're a production of KQED Public Radio. I'm Saul Gonzalez. Thanks so much for listening and have a great day. Support for the California Report comes from Stanford Medicine. Protecting your health and providing dependable care with safe in-person appointments and video visits. StanfordHealthCare.org slash AdaptingCare. The Wesley Foundation. Investing in California's underserved youth. And Eric and Wendy Schmidt whose philanthropy harnesses the power of people and science to create innovative solutions for a healthy environment, just societies, and opportunities for human achievement. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member. Get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks.